0: All right, John chapter 2. Okay. I feel like, uh, really sense that we needed to spend uh, some more time in the, our Lord's first miracle sign that He performed in His public ministry, which was, of course, turning the water into wine at the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee, and you start unpacking this, and like we talked about before, if if there's ever been a passage that illustrates um, what has been said of the book of John, Uh, matter of fact, um, I don't know if it's the most limited vocabulary in the New Testament, but it certainly Either the most limited or, or, or close to it uh, in John's Gospel, he uses less the least amount of words uh, from the English lang- uh, from the uh, Greek language from which it was written than any of the other New Testament books. I think any of them. Um, and uh, in other words, it is simply written. And of course, it, wrote, it was written through him by the finger of God. But um, if ever, if ever, a book. Or a, t- a part of this book ever illustrates what has been said of it repeatedly, and that is that it's uh, shallow enough for a child to wade through, but deep enough for a uh, elephant to swim and drown in. It would be this, uh, to me, thus far, it would be it would be this miracle performed by our Lord and turning the water into wine. And that's why I'm just drawn to it and have fell, fallen in love with it over and over again. And um, studying it, and pondering it, and meditating on this passage. There's so much here, and of course we're going to only <laughs> scratch the surface, no matter how long we stay in it. But I didn't want to leave until um, we at least looked at it one more time. So let's read it, if you if you will, follow along with me. If you have your Bible. It's John chapter two, verses one through twelve, and. Um, As we open up God's Word, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to You in the name of Jesus and we're so grateful to You for the rich treasure that we have in front of us. We reflect on the fact that You've said in Your Word in this book that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. So whatever's in our heart ultimately comes out in our speech. Um, That being true, then when we have Your words, we have... The entryway into your heart. How beautiful and wonderful and glorious that is. And we know that's a gift. It's not like we gathered together and drew up some conclusions about you, or uh, and, and we arrived at them and they happened to be accurate, or or uh, or that a, a group of men over a, over a, a period of fifteen hundred years uh, decided. Uh, to uh, pin a message about their opinions regarding where we came from and why we're here and where we're headed. None of those things are true. We got this Word, and it's from you. It's, uh, you chose to work through human vessels, but it's God-breathed. Every word of it. And in so doing that, we have this treasure. We have this infinite uh, treasure of infinite worth in front of us where we see and can be um, and, and, and made known as your heart. And the heart of the matter is always the heart of the matter. And whatever you say and whatever you think is the way it is, and only what you say matters. And I pray you will open up our hearts to what you have to say this morning. And once again, we pray that the word will fall down into hearts that. Are so softened up by your uh, spirit and our our attitude and, and our faith that the words would find its way. They find their way easily into our hearts and take root there. And once again, we do pray that we will grow strong roots downward so that we might bear fruit upward, fruit to your glory. That's more to, you couldn't. We could never ask that of a human book could never expect that nor should we human words won't do it but we can and do expect that from your word for it's alive and it became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld your glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth so we pray for transfiguration Lord that once again you would Turn the diamond of Your Son in a direction so that we see His glory in ways that we haven't seen before. And we're reminded of things we've already been privileged to see. And that the worship and the praise and the consecration and the surrender that comes from that would be ours. In the sweet and precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And now both Jesus and His disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what what does your concern have to do with Me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever He says to you, do it. And now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim and He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the Master of the feast. And they took it. And when the Master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, it did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee had manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him after this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Last week, we looked at the remarkable devastation that can occur when we approach God's Word from a me-centered orientation. We made the case last week by looking at how this text has been used, tragically, to elevate Mary to a place that God doesn't elevate her by the Roman Catholics. And we looked as well at how by looking first from a horizontal viewpoint and then shoving it up to heaven, also the... Beauty and the gift of marriage has been elevated by the Catholics to a place that God never intended it. Viewing it as a sacrament, in other words, a means of salvation, of justification, eternal life, which is uh, a tremendous perversion of this whole text. Those are examples of how that that can happen virtually any place in the Bible if we look out, in, and up, rather than looking up, in, and out. One of the prayer requests that we've talked about that we pray for this church is that we would first look up, in, and out, rather than out, in, and up, using as our basis for praying like that Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he first looked up. Then he got a proper view of himself. God cleansed him because he knew he needed it. And then sent him. So he looked up, in, and out. We're prone to do the opposite. Look out, in, and up. And when the Bible is viewed that way, things like this happen. And we need to be cautious about that. Because we know this. We come to this day. We're coming to the end of what we've called the New Creation Week. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the heralding of His ministry by John the Baptist. The calling of what we believe to be six of the twelve disciples that eventually called were called during this first week. And we've talked about it. We haven't gone into it. And I've... Thought about doing that and prayed about it, but there's a lot of uh, there are many um, similarities when you compare the first week of creation in Genesis one and two to the first week of recreation that set forth for us in John chapter one. But we come and so we're, and we can go through those. Maybe later on we might do that, but for right now, one of the similarities. A glaring similarity is that the first week of creation ended with a wedding, a marriage. The first week of recreation, new creation, ends with a wedding. And it's here. On this day, of the end of that week, Jesus and His disciples are invited to a wedding that His mother attends as well. And we looked at that from the standpoint of our redemption. We looked at that from a certainly uh, certainly, a, 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 a validation by our Lord Himself of the significance and the importance and, and the uh, origin of marriage itself. But we didn't want to start there. We want to start here. Because that's where He's looking. And that's where He's standing. And that's where He's thinking when He's at this wedding feast. And when they come to Him with this problem, His mother does are running out of wine and we talked about how tragic of a social event, a social tragedy that was for them to to do that. We talked about all the implications behind that. We know what he's thinking by one phrase that comes out of his mouth. When he says in verse 4, woman, when he finds out the dilemma, or she informs him of the dilemma, he knew it already. What does your concern have to do with me? Now if that stopped right there, we go he's basically saying i'm an invited guest it's not it's not my problem but the next phrase that comes out of his mouth gives us insight into what he was thinking my hour has not yet come and we look at that and go now what what that what could that possibly have to do well as we continue to read through the gospel narrative we understand as the case builds and he comes closer and closer to the hour what He's referring to there. And He's referring to the cross. My hour of arrest, betrayal, and false accusation, and substitutionary atoning death on the cross is not yet here. And so that's a strange response for Him to make except when we look up first and we realize He's saying, I'm not ready for to take on my bride yet because I've got the first Purchase her. She's got to be purchased. And my bride is going to be purchased by my life. I'm going to give up my life and I'm going to purchase her with my life and I'm going to cleanse her to make her fit to be joined with me by my blood. That's what He's thinking. And it's not yet time to feast and celebrate it. One day will be. The marriage supper of the Lamb. You remember we looked at it in Revelation chapter 19. Blessed is everyone who's invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. As repentant believers, we'll be there. Only repentant believers will be there. And then it's time to break out the new wine that will never run out. But He whets our appetite by responding to the request and filling the water pots with wine to show as a preview of coming attraction what one day is coming, that Jesus saves the best for last. Hallelujah. The best is coming. And we talked about last week that marriages, human marriages, are all imperfect. Some are closer to God's design than others. We know that. Some end in divorce tragically. But they all miss the mark. But they all have this in common whether they miss the mark or not, they are to reflect and they are a testimony of what God has done in Christ. To purchase a bride for him. That's why in heaven there'll be no marriage because the example will no longer be needed. We'll be there. The marriage will have occurred. All other marriages will cease in heaven Um, because the marriage, the marriage that all marriages are pointing to, will have occurred. It will have been consummated, it will have been uh, made complete. In Genesis, in the creation account, when God performed the first wedding and He brought Eve from Adam and wed them in Genesis chapter 2, He illustrated the Gospel before He ever proclaimed it. Now think about that for a minute. He illustrated the Gospel in the making of the woman and bringing Adam and Eve together before He ever proclaimed it. He proclaimed it in the next chapter in Genesis chapter three verse fifteen, in what we call the proto evangelium, and that's when he promised that the seed of the woman, singular, speaking of Jesus, was going God was going to become a man, and that the enemy would bruise his heel, but he would bruise his head. And that's the first proclamation of the gospel in the Bible. Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. But before He proclaimed the Gospel, He illustrated it when He made the woman and put Adam and Eve together in marriage. The marriage was instituted before the fall. Marriage was not God's response to the fall. To say, well, now that you've done this, I need to establish a home so that we can have some kind of social order out of the chaos that's going to come from your your sin and rebellion. No. In a perfect environment, with a perfect sinless environment, God established marriage. He wed Adam 1, the first Adam. Ladies, in here, you occupy a special place of prominence in the heart of God because of the way you were created. God elevated womanhood by the way He made you. Because you'll remember that He put Adam to sleep. He reached in and grabbed a rib out of Adam and took from that rib and formed a woman. That illustrates the Gospel. It illustrates the cross. Because God put Adam to sleep and performed surgery on him and from his side comes his bride. That illustrates for us that Jesus on the cross put to sleep in death. And from that death comes forth His bride. When the Roman soldier stuck Him in the side, you'll remember. Um, and from His pierced side out flowed blood and water. Blood for the relationship. Water for the fellowship. And from that flow of blood we're now part of the bride of Christ. So the way you were created as a female illustrates the gospel. It illustrates the cross. It illustrates salvation. The means by which salvation illustrates covenant love. And it shows us the one thing that's true of agape love and that is that it is sacrificial. It pays a price. It is sacrificial. And so when he illustrates the gospel in Genesis chapter 2, he proclaims it in 3. But he illustrates it first. Same thing happens here. He illustrates the Gospel on this wedding day by turning the water into wine and wetting our appetite for what's to come. And then proclaims it and fulfills it in his death at the end of the book of John. Same thing. It's the same order. But his thoughts are about that hour. That takes us way up here. That takes us way up here. So Jesus is up here thinking like this. And because we have the mind of Christ as repentant believers, we need to think like that. And we have the capacity now to think like that. So He says, okay, wait, this hour has not yet come. Okay, what did He mean by that? Well, you'll remember that in Jewish weddings, they're much different, much different than ours. What what we would call an engagement period, they would call they called betrothal. And what would happen is is there would be a commitment made between the the bridegroom and the bride, and the bridegroom would promise uh, they would promise themselves to one another. And then that would trigger a betrothal period that could last as much as a year or so. And during that betrothal period. In the eyes of Jewish law and custom, they were married, and the only way to break a betrothal would be divorce. It'd be just as much of a divorce to break off the commitment in the period of betrothal as it would it be after the marriage uh, commitment and consummation had been made. And so, what would happen though is the bridegroom would pay a price. It could be called a dowry. A pay a price to. Uh, the uh, bride's father. Uh, that's almost like a. It's like a commitment. It's like putting his money where his mouth is to put some skin in the game to say, you know what, I am committed to this. I'm all in. We've got a we've got a covenant now, and that exchange would take place in Jesus Christ joining together in we His bride, which would be the church, comprised of a remnant in Israel, Jew and Gentile alike, the Father sets the purchase price. The only way He says to the Son, Jesus, God the Son, that you're going to be able to be joined to this bride and her fit to you be... To be joined to her and it not be adultery is that she's got to be cleansed and purchased. And you're going to have to, the only price that could be paid for her is pure, sinless blood. That's the price. And Jesus says, I'll do it. So his hour that he refers to there. My hour has not yet come. And we're going, what does that have to do with marriage of Canaan? Nothing. It has to do with the marriage of the Lamb. It has to do with the bride of Christ is what it has to do with. And he said, my hour to make this purchase, to fulfill the terms of the dowry and to betroth her to me has not yet come. But it will, but it's not yet come. But in the meantime, I'm going to do this to show you There's some great things ahead. Oh, there are some great things ahead. And so he says, okay, I'll pay the price. Now, in John chapter 7, verse 30, let's go look at it. Now, keep your Bibles open here, if you will, and we'll go to some places here. John chapter 7, verse 30. um, He goes back to this same area, and it says. Therefore they sought to take Him, but no one laid a hand on Him, because His hour had not yet come. The dowry purchase that set by the Father, God the Father, that says, You want this bride? Do you want this bride? It's going to come at the expense of your life on Calvary. Because two things. Only sinless blood will purchase her and atone for her sin. And you're the only one who has sinless blood. And there's the price. Are you willing to pay it? And Jesus' answer was, thankfully, yes. For the joy set before me, a pure bride, chaste, unsullied, unblemished, to take to myself that's very attractive, that I've made attractive through my attractiveness, I am going to to endure the suffering and pain of the cross because I know on the other side you will give me what you've promised. But my hour has not yet come. Then you go to Mark 14.41. Let's go look over there. Mark 14.41. Now here comes the hour. Now listen to this. Then He came the third time and said to them, this is in Gethsemane, Or just before. Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The hour has come. Now that draws our attention back to the marriage supper or the marriage at Cana. He said, this is, okay. everything is building up to this hour. This hour in which He's going to be betrayed, falsely accused, sent to the cross, an innocent man. Our guilt laid upon Him as His bride. He pays the price, our dowry, set by the Father. Releases us from guilt and shame. And now has betrothed us to Himself. After having paid the price, my hour has come, he says. It's here, it's upon us. Look at Matthew chapter 26, 36 through 46. Now we see the humanity of Jesus interposed in all of this. We see his divinity and we see his humanity. He Remember, he's truly God and he's truly man. He's truly God and truly man. Listen to this, or let's read along together with this. Then Jesus came to them to a place called Gethsemane. And said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, "Oh my father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? You could not could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Here's his humanity measured against his deity. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so he went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And he came to his disciples and he said to them, Listen to this, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The hour has come. He goes into, I don't want to call it negotiations, but almost light negotiations over the dowry. And he says, Father, I know you set the price. we set it in eternity past. The only way For us to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in me is for me to die in their place. Substitutionary death. The only way that you can remain just and holy and at the same time cleanse rebellious, unholy people and make them fit for heaven is through my death, my sacrifice on their behalf. The price has already been set, but let's take one more look at it before we go. Before your wrath is poured out on me, this cup of your wrath, is I'm drenched with it on the cross. Is there any other way? Can any other price satisfy you in order for you to give me that bride? And the Father says, I price has been said. That's the only thing they'll do. It's the only thing that's going to satisfy or appease. It's the only thing that's going to propitiate. It's the only thing that's going to appease my judgment and wrath against your bride as they are. They can't become your bride without cleansing. And the only way to be cleansed is that you pay the price for them in their place you purchased them. It's only those only payment I can possibly accept. I cannot remain just and holy and faithful to my word and the judgment that sin deserves and at the same time hold not guilty and acquit guilty sinners without you doing what you have purposed and committed to do. That's it. And he says, "Thank you, thankfully." What a beautiful Savior we have. Not my will, but Thine be done. Go ahead. Go ahead, Lord. And all these events start happening at a pretty fast fast pace. The betrayal, the arrest, the false accusations, the court, the sham, all of that, it starts happening at a pace all under the sovereign care and guidance of the Father. And the Son willingly submitting every single step of the way to perfection. My hour. Look at John chapter 12. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. John chapter 12, verse 23. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour that the Son of Man has come, that the Son of Man should be glorified. What hour? Not 60 minutes. But the block of time of my betrayal and my arrest and my accusations falsely leveled, trial, and laying down my life on the cross, that hour has come. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? What's my response to a troubled soul? What's the trouble? That everything that he has committed to judge that's worthy of the wrath of God that he detests and he despises, he's about to become. He who knew no sin, what? Became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And he says, am I to say, Father, rescue me from this? Save me from this hour? Could His Father have saved Him from the hour? Absolutely. He did tell Pilate, didn't he? I could call. I have at my at my beck and call a host of angels that could come down here and stop this within an eyelash of time. Stop this! Don't think that I'm a victim. I'm sovereign over this. The Father's in charge, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father glorify your name. Jesus saying you know what? The greatest act perpetrated on the face of this earth is about to take place that glorifies the Father and that is the substitutionary atoning death of His dear Son. And He was privileged. His view was I'm privileged to do this because the Father deserves this kind of glory. And in so doing that I will get my promised bride. So when He said that to Mary, these are the things He's thinking through. These are the things that are on His mind. A bride, a purchase price set by the Father, the dowry, and His remarkable love willing to lay down His life to pay it. We are the purchased possession of God. Think about that. How do you assess the worth of something? I could say, you know what? Our house is worth a million dollars. If you've ever been to our house, you know it's not worth a million dollars. You know what our house is worth? Our house is worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Calibrate that with the church. Line that up with the church. What was God the Son willing, what price was He willing to pay for His bride? His very life. That's why when Jesus met the Apostle Paul on the road to uh, Damascus, He said, why are you persecuting Me? Because see, if you mess with My bride, you're messing with Me. It's the same thing. Jesus was already ascended into Heaven. The Apostle Paul never laid a hand on Him when He was Saul. But He was persecuting the church and it's one and the same. Because the two shall become What? what marriage is all about. I feel like Charlie Brown, when when his little friend Linus said after he read from Luke chapter 2 this cute little rendering of Luke chapter 2 and he said, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And I, I feel like saying that. That's what marriage is all about, church. That betrothal. The price. And now we have been betrothed to Him. And the marriage is going to be consummated but he us in the middle. There's going to be a delay between a betrothal and, consummation. and I'm not going to tell you how long the delay is, but I am going to tell you there's going to be one. And in the meantime, you watch with anticipation. You pray. You go through your routine. You don't go out in the woods somewhere and live in the hut and recluse from the world waiting for the Lord to come get you back. You go through the routine. But as you go through your routine and as you do what you know to do, you've got an eye toward heaven because you long to be joined with your husband when he came the first time he paid the dowry then he went on to a long journey and what's he doing twiddling his thumbs in heaven no the Bible says he's at the Father's right hand he ever lives to make intercession for us he's actively involved in our lives through the Holy Spirit he lives in us we're indwelt by him We're loved by Him. We're empowered by Him. And then in this classic passage, and I got it all messed up when I was trying to do it from memory, so I'm not going to do that today. Look at John chapter 14 with me. So think about this now. This is what he's saying. I pay the betrothal price. I pay the dowry to the Father. The Father set the price. You want this bride, son? Do you really want this bride? And He said, yeah, I want this bride. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to pay for that bride? I am. You know why? Because I love her. But not only do I love her, I am consumed with you being glorified. I'm obsessed with it. I have an obsession, and that is that you be glorified. Because in purchasing her, you will be glorified. Because you are a just God, but you're also a Savior. And God delights to show mercy. Did you know God gets excited about showing mercy? Jonah said that. He said, I don't want to come to preach to the Ninevites. The reason I did this is because I know what you're like. You're merciful. And I knew that you were going to give it to Him. Because He had lost sight of how badly He stood in need of it. Look what He says. So in the, in the period between the betrothal, or the dowry paid, and... Triggering the betrothal period, what what is the husband about doing? He's saving his money, he's building his house, he's preparing things, and he's getting things ready for his bride. It's exactly what Jesus is doing in heaven right now. Look at it. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you will be also. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, Nancy, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through... He says, listen, I paid the dowry. I'm going to the dwelling place and I'm preparing our home. And when the time comes, I'm going to come get you. And I'm going to bring you to myself and this marriage will be consummated. And it will begin with a feast that will never end. That's what John chapter 2 is all about. That's what the marriage at Cana is all about. That's what Christian marriage is all about. Is it for social order and social good? And the continuation of our race? Yes. But is that his ultimate purpose? No. Let's not stay horizontal. Let's start vertical. And then we can understand horizontal. And then we can endure through anything, even difficult marriages, because we know what that means. So he comes the first time to pay the dowry. We're now betrothed to him. And he's coming the second time to marry us. Isn't that great? He's coming the second time to marry us. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. If you think I'm throwing this around in a way that's not biblical, see what you think. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul, he comes and he rounds out everything, and he says, "Husbands, twenty-five, love your wives; just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? To pay the dowry. Set by who? The Father, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her, which is going on right now with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church on the wedding day, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That but that she should be holy and without blemish." He's got these instructions and we stop there and say, well, that's how we're supposed to act. Stops there. No. He says, this is a great mystery. But listen, I speak concerning Christ and the church. This concerns Christ and the church. So he's standing there at the wedding feast of Galilee at Cana. And what is he thinking? This concerns me and my church. That's why the whole dialogue goes on the way it does. This concerns me in my church. I'm thinking so far above you guys. I heard uh, a definition of idolatry that I don't totally agree with because I don't think it's comprehensive enough. But I believe it does include in the definition of idolatry. It helps, under, helps enrich our understanding. And you know what it is? To take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing. Christians can do that with marriage. Marriage is a good thing, absolutely. But when we make it the ultimate thing, it's idolatry. The ultimate thing is that my marriage and my oneness with my wife is as sweet as it can be. I'm tickled to be married. I'm high on marriage. i got a wonderful wife. Thank you, Jesus, for a Christian wife that I do not deserve. My wife is patent evidence of the grace of God in my life because it's unmerited favor that she's my wife. But I have to think about it in terms that this is to show me and to give me the opportunity to relish in my real husband. My, I am married to Christ. I'm part of the bride of Christ. And we can glorify God together in that way by me dying to myself the way He did. This is one of the best ways for Christ to do to do the work of the cross for me after having done the work of the cross in me. For if I'm going to be the kind of husband that He's called me to be, it will mean my death. Just like Jesus, it meant His death in order to purchase His bride. In order to take care of my bride and to honor God in my marriage, I will have to die. I get to die. I get to die and be freed from everything that binds me, which is myself. What a privilege. I want not you listen to the language? Just go with me and let's indulge a little bit. Turn to Hosea, will you? you everybody's familiar with Hosea. You read the book of Hosea and you can't help but have a tremendous amount of sympathy for this prophet. He's called upon to marry a woman that God tells Him up front is not going to be faithful to you. Not just secretively unfaithful. This woman is going to be blatantly, brazenly, and openly unfaithful to you. And you're going to nonetheless be faithful to her as an illustration of the way my people are treating me, their husband. And Hosea did it. It's a book of covenant love. It's so sweet. It's such a sweet, sweet account. Uh, No telling the rewards are accumulating for Hosea. Even right now, because we're using this... I want you to listen to God speaking. Now this is God speaking. Now listen, listen, just listen. Listen. He says, you know what? We're going to have some problems. Judgment's going to come. But i got a plan. And in the end, you're going to repent. I'll see to it. And then in the end, I'm going to come and you're going to be the covenant people that I planned and marked you out to be all along. And this is how He speaks of them. After restoration, listen to this. This is how he speaks to spiritual prostitutes that he makes right with him. Listen to this. Verse 14, therefore, chapter 2, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Acor as a door of hope. The valley of Acor is a door of judgment. After they went into Ai, you'll remember. And some of the booty was stolen by Achan. And God marked him out in judgment because he did. They were strictly forbidden to keep any of Jericho. Any. So they wound up getting defeated at Ai. And the reason they did is because there was sin in the camp. And God pointed out Achan and his family. And he and his family were put in this valley. And everything they owned and they were destroyed in this valley. He said, that valley of judgment, I will turn it into a valley of hope. She shall sing there. As in the days of her youth. As in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be... Listen to the tenderness of this. Listen to this love letter. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and will no longer call me my master. Is he our master? Absolutely. But all dear ones. Do you see what's happening here? The first marriage failed. The first Adam failed. They didn't stand up. Whatever Adam had, it wasn't good enough. But the second Adam succeeded. Hallelujah. And he has brought us into relationship with him through his own faithfulness, his own sacrifice, and his own eternal life. We're now partakers of all of that. And it says, For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. Idolatry is going to be over. Interesting note. Listen to this. In Hebrew, the name Baal, okay, comes from the word Master. And the two words, as a matter of fact, even sound alike. The Baals, the idols... Wanted a master-slave relationship with man, but not God. No, no. He wants a love-based relationship of commitment like a marriage. You know what the word Islam means? It means submission. You submit or die. And God says, I deserve your submission." I alone deserve it. But I'm going to die to get it. Oh, wow! I remember Mr. Hussein, a converted Muslim who's from Iran, and he bags our groceries at Publix. You've heard me talk about him. He's been to our church and give his testimony. He said, Islam about hate, Jesus, and the cross about love. And when he said that to me, I said, you got it, Mr. Hussein. You got it. And that day, I'll make a a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. All the curse is going to be over. Bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth and to make them lie down safely in the millennial kingdom. Hallelujah! I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass on that day. In that day that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth again shall answer with what? Provision. No lack. Grain. New wine. Oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And then I will sow her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her whom I have not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you belong to me. You know, the Apostle Paul, we read from it last week. He said, listen, I've got this fear in me. Listen now. I've got this fear in me that you're going to move away from the simplicity that's in Christ because I've betrothed you to Him. Do you know what a a real pastor is? A real pastor is a spiritual matchmaker. A real Christian is concerned with spiritual matchmaking. That is, that you betrothed to Christ. That Christ be formed in you. I was talking to a guy the other day, and he said, uh, I try not to at my second job, ever let them know I'm a pastor. And the reason, I, I, it's not because I'm ashamed of it, it's because sometimes it will shut down or make them act in ways that are not authentic. I hate to say that, but it's true. So I was working with this guy, cussing like a sailor. And then comes up, sure enough, Is this part time for you? I said yes, part time. I said my full time is I'm a pastor. He went, you are. I said yeah. Like, what does it matter that he's cussing in front of me? It doesn't matter. I'm not. I'm nothing. And every now and then he'll let one slip, but you can tell he's really guarded. Then all of a sudden he says, you know, I go to so and so's church, and if you fill in, it's the name of the pastor. I go to blankety blanks church. Somebody, if I called your name, you'd be very familiar. I don't know this pastor. But I hope this. I hope that no pastor would ever want that said of them. You are not betrothed to me. You don't belong to me. My mission and job and calling is to commend you to Christ because He's the bridegroom. Amen? This is His church. It was bought and paid for by His blood. The Apostle Paul knew that. John the Baptist knew that. John the Baptist said, Hey, listen. Hey, you know what? The disciples are leaving you, they said. The disciples are leaving you, John, and they're following Him. And He said, I am thrilled about that. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. Because when the bridegroom comes, the friends of the bridegroom rejoice to hear His voice and want everybody that He's been talking about now that He's here to follow Him.